So people of God in Christ, there is a, a certain common expression or phrase that we use as Christians. It's the expression, the promises of the gospel. And this evening, I would uh, have a stop and ask, what do we mean by these words? When we speak of the promises of the gospel, there is a sense in which we even mean the gospel itself. In one sense, the gospel itself is a promise and, and even a series or a collection of promises. The word gospel means good news. And on one hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of what God did, past tense, in Christ for our salvation. The conception and birth, the life and ministry, the suffering and death, and finally the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. All of it, all in all of its glory, was God's work in Christ to save us from our sins. And yet, on the other hand, the gospel is also the good news of what is now. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that not good news? And the good news. And the gospel is what will be ours because of Christ's saving work. And this is where the promises of the gospel come in. Already, even now, because of Christ's saving work, you and I, as believers in Christ, are forgiven of our sins. We are redeemed from sin, death, and hell. Already, we are counted righteous before God, being credited with the perfect obedience of Christ. Already, we have been taken into the family of God. We are children of the Heavenly Father and brothers and sisters in Christ to each other. So already we are justified, already redeemed, already reconciled to God and adopted as his children. But, as the Apostle John says, what we will be has not yet appeared. He writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. If you didn't hear it, let me just point out that that's a promise, a promise of what will be. By all means, let us not discount what has happened in the past. So often God's word calls us to behold. We must behold what has happened, what God and Christ has accomplished. And we don't want to neglect what, uh, what is already ours now, who we are, and what already belongs to us in Christ. But brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is all about promises. Promises of what will be. And so the promises of the gospel should be near and dear to us. The promises of the gospel should be on our minds and, and often in the meditations of our hearts. They should be not just promises, but precious promises. Imagine if you knew that uh, some person or family, uh, maybe some former members of this congregation, uh, uh, that, that they were going to be in church uh, in, in, uh, on some Sunday in the near future. Uh, wouldn't you drive to church uh, each uh, Sunday thinking to yourself, I, I wonder if they'll be there. Uh, wouldn't there be some discussion of it? Uh, what do you think? Are they coming today? Will it be next week? Have you heard anything? Or how about this? What if you heard within your workplace 
that uh, bonuses were coming. Uh, wouldn't the water cooler, as they say, be crowded? Wouldn't there be talk of it? Uh, have you received your bonus? When is it coming? How much will it be? And yet as Christians, as believers in Christ, we have the promises of gospel glory. We have received promises that pale all other promises. We have the promise of a new creation, the coming of a, of a kingdom in which there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin or suffering or evil forever and ever. And all of this we are due to receive. All of this belongs to us. All of this is ours. But by way of the promises of the gospel upon the return of Christ in glory. This evening, as we look at 2 Peter 3, 1 through 7, the, the first point is the great promise. The great promise of the gospel for the return of Christ in glory. That's what Peter works his way up to in, in 2 Peter. The chapter begins with a, a kind of summary statement or review of what he has already written. He writes in verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Do you remember that? Back in 2 Peter 1, verse 12, he wrote, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And so now he writes again in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, I am stirring up. Sound familiar? It should. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And specifically, he goes on to say that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Do you remember that? In, uh, from 1 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully con confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So a bit of review from Peter, a kind of summary statement. But then he writes this in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And so we have a reference here to uh, what we might call the great promise. And why is it the great promise? Because the promise of Christ, if you think about it this way, the promise of Christ's return is the promise that really contains all the other promises as well. The promise of Christ's coming, again, encapsulates all the rest because, because our final acquittal before the judgment seat of God will come on that day. Our vindication before the world will be ours on that day. Upon the return of Christ, brothers and sisters, we will be delivered from this body of death to inhabit the imperishable, incorruptible, and immortal body of eternal life. And we will gain what is now only promised to us, the riches and the glory and the full and eternal enjoyment of the blessed kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a great promise, the return of Christ in glory. And another way to put it is to say that the greatness of the promise is found in the glory of his coming. Let us not fail to hear and, and know and believe that Christ will come again in glory. Uh, 
because the glory of his coming will not just be a glory that, that he possesses and displays for all to see on that day, but a glory that he shares with those who are waiting for him. Back to Psalm 23 again, because there it says, first, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Note that the table is prepared. It doesn't say we're there yet. It just says that it's prepared. The glory awaits us. The glory is stored up for us. And it's, and it's secondly, a table that is prepared in the presence of my enemies. There's the vindication of that day. Because not only will we be acquitted in the final judgment, we will also be vindicated before the world that opposes us. Even more, you anoint my head with oil. There's the great comfort and honor of that day. My cup overflows. There's the great abundance of blessing in that day. And so the psalmist writes, as we focused uh, last week, focused on last week in the morning, uh, he writes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yes, we already now receive goodness and mercy from our good shepherd. But heaven yet awaits us where, where we will dwell forever. And there's the eternal nature of that day. Psalm 23 is prophetic, not just of the first coming of Christ, but it's prophetic of his return in glory as well. But Peter mentions the great promise of Christ's return in glory because... There will always be those who scoff at this promise. Second point is scoffers of the promise. He writes in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? What does it mean to scoff? It's not a word that you hear much, I think. But to scoff means to openly doubt and mock something. To scoff means to say, what, really? You believe that? How foolish. And that's really how many people hear and react to the promise of Christ's return. When they hear the promise, they, they certainly don't celebrate the promise as we should. And it's because they don't believe it. And so they scoff. And the reason they don't believe it is because they, they don't believe in Christ. Peter is probably referring, once again, to, to certain people who uh, were even in the church. For whatever reason, perhaps uh, for business purposes, uh, it happens still today. Perhaps uh, for social reasons, for whatever reason. There are people, uh, there may be people who, who are in the church but are not believers. And so they are always trying to make the Christian faith less offensive to the world because they want to be in the church for whatever reasons, but they also want to be friends with the world. It's a, it's a classic case of straddling the fence, as we say. But as Peter explains, it's ultimately because they want to follow their own evil desires. And could it be that there are others who don't openly scoff at the promise of Christ's return, but, but who scoff more inwardly? They hear the great promise of Christ's return, and, and they say within their hearts, well, I don't believe it. It's too extreme. It's, it's too fantastic. Uh, it doesn't fit my version of Christianity. 
because they want to hold out the opportunity to live for themselves, as Peter puts it, to follow their own sinful desires. The bottom line is this. If you don't believe in the return of Christ, then you, then you really don't believe in Christ. And, and that's why we need to ask ourselves, am I waiting for Christ? Am I expecting His return in glory? God's Word even calls us to live in daily expectation for His return. And in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For we who have the firstfruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In Hebrews 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ, having offered once to bear the sins Uh, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He already did that. But to save those who are what? Who are eagerly waiting for Him. So maybe we aren't scoffers, but are we believers? Is it in our hearts and minds that Christ is coming again, that when He comes, He will share with us the glory with, uh, share with us a glory that cannot be compared to any glory on earth? The promise of Christ's return in glory should not just be a promise, but again, a precious promise. And it should be a precious promise because Christ Himself is precious to us. Think of, the, think of the army wife who uh, says she loves her husband, but she isn't really waiting for her husband's return from deployment. Is it any different for Christians who, who give little or, or no thought to the return of Christ, who rarely pray about it, who, who never speak of it? Are they waiting for Christ? Do they love Christ? And can they expect to share in His glory upon His return. But when we hear scoffers, we, we need to understand them. We need to understand that they are simply doing what is natural to them. They, they want to follow their own sinful desires. They, they don't want to think about any judgment to come. They, they, they don't want there to be a, a good king who is ruling over this world and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So they scoff at the idea They mock anyone who would believe such foolishness in their estimation. And so we also need to admit there's a scoffer in each of us, and we need to combat that scoffer. We need to remember that Jesus is coming again. And what better way to do that than by praying for it, asking for it in prayer. That's really how the whole Bible comes to an end. In Revelation 22, we hear the promise three times, three times over. In Revelation 22, verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. In verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And for a third time, in Revelation 22, verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then we are given this prayer as a response. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus. How remarkable that, uh, that we are even called to pray for the return of Christ. And we should ask why. 
why pray for something that is sure to happen and will happen on the appointed day? We, we in, in one sense, can't really make it happen any sooner. You probably maybe heard the verse that we're going to get to next week, the Lord willing, uh, where it talks about hastening the day. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with that next Sunday. But there is a day appointed, and, and, and we can't really make it happen any sooner by praying. Uh, so why pray, come, Lord Jesus? Well, as we pray this prayer each day, it will be our daily reminder that He is coming. It will be a daily renewal of our waiting for Him. And by praying for His coming, it will give us to live in expectation as well. Because waiting for Christ is not just about what we pray, but it's about how we live. Those who scoff do so because they are following their own sinful desires. And so those who do not scoff, but daily expect His return, do so by seeking to honor Him in their obedience to Him. In order to live for Christ, we must remember Christ. Sin comes from the Christian's uh, or sin comes into the Christian's life by way of forgetfulness. Sin comes when we forget what our sin cost our Lord as he died on the cross. Sin comes when we forget who we are, whose we are, what we are in Christ. And the best way to remember all this in order to keep us from sin is to remember that the Savior whom we dearly love is coming again, and He's coming again in glory. But going back to Revelation 22, verse 20, we hear the words of Christ Himself, Surely I am coming soon. Surely. Do not doubt. Do not scoff. Instead, believe. And that's Peter's point as well in our our passage. And here's a third point. The sure word of God in creation. Peter writes in verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact. That's an indication that these are people in the church. They should know this. They're deliberately overlooking this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So what is Peter doing here? He's, he is seeking to show that the promise of Christ's return by the word of God is a sure word that we must believe, a promise to be trusted and held even year after year, year, generation after generation within the church. And he shows us this by pointing out that God created the whole world by his word. Think about this, uh, that if God created the whole world by commanding it to exist, then even as it continues to exist, Are we not seeing the power and faithfulness of God's Word? When a a baseball player hits a baseball, the power of his bat is displayed by the distance that the ball travels. If the power of his bat is great enough, he hits a home run. And if it's an out-of-the-park home run, then the batter's power is displayed all the more. But what if the ball never stopped? Because that's what we have in creation. God commanded the world to exist, and since the world exists yet today, we know all the more the power, the sureness of God's Word. 
And that's the funny thing about these scoffers. They, they look at the world continuing to exist year after year and they say, it's been too long now. Jesus said he was coming again, but how long does he expect us to wait? People are born, people die, another generation comes and goes. Ha! Who really believes that he's coming at all? But Peter points out their foolishness. The passage of time is not a reason to doubt, but a reason to believe. A reason to hold to the promise, because the passage of time through creation shows the power of God's word. The passage of time shows the faithfulness of God to his word. We only need to see that creation and the return of Christ stand upon the same word of God. However, Peter also uses Noah's flood to show the foolishness of scoffers. And this is the next point, the sure word of God in Noah's flood. Peter writes in verse 6, Uh, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter says, uh, look how powerful the Word of God is. Look at the faithfulness of God that creation continues year after year by way of the Word of God. But don't forget the flood. Don't forget that while God is faithful, He is also judge of all the earth. So don't think that judgment will not come. Just because judgment hasn't come yet, don't think that it will never come. God's Word is powerful to sustain creation. But at any moment, God can also put sinners to death as He did in the flood. The bottom line is that we just need to know our Bibles because it's it's all there. Has God ever said anything that, that wasn't true? Did God ever say that something was going to happen and it didn't happen? Over and over again in Scripture, the truth of God's Word is proven and, and put on display for all to see. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, God even says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from Ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so scoffers are are like children. Another little illustration here. Scoffers are like children whose parents tell them in the morning, uh, Today we're going out to eat. But by noon, the children are already doubting the promise. And uh, through the afternoon, they, they say to each other, well, hasn't happened yet. I don't think it's going to happen. And so they make other plans. They go out into the neighborhood to play, and they get left out when the time comes to leave for dinner. So here's, here's the final point, the sure word of God for final judgment. Because if the word of God is proven true in creation, And if the word of God was proven true in Noah's flood, then the word of God promising the return of Christ is true and sure as well. Peter writes now in verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
So they can laugh all they want, says Peter, but in the end, the joke is on them. Only the coming judgment is certainly no joke, and it's no laughing matter. But the testimony of God is clear in His Word. His Word is sure. His Word is powerful. His Word is true. And He has never failed to do what He said He would do. So if God gives clear warning, then let no one scoff and let all men take warning and know that Jesus is coming again. And in the end, we need to do a little scoffing of our own. Not, not in a hateful, bitter way, but we need to scoff at the foolishness of man. Mankind is so arrogant in his, in his knowledge uh, by way of technological advancement. Man thinks he's smarter than God, the one who designed all the things that man has taken thousands of years to understand, but a small portion of it. We need to recognize what fools What fools to think that we know better than God. What fools to think that if there is a God, he better do things according to our timetable and not his own. If there is a God, he better speak up right now and and, and right here and and not give us a book to read. Even at work, if if you miss an, an email, that's your problem, right? The boss is not obligated to come knock on your door, sit down and and, uh, make sure you got the message. You need to be paying attention. You need to know how the boss operates and what he wants. And yet, what do people do with God but demand that he submit to their demands and to their requirements? Man is a fool. He tells himself lies over and over, trying to convince himself. He gathers together a group of people, and they all agree together uh, that they're wise and understanding. Uh, They give each other awards for how good they are here. I give you this reward next year. Uh, You give me one, okay? Okay. And they elect a leader and hail him their Savior, but he's just as corrupt as the rest of them. And so they go merrily down the road of destruction, while all the while... The truth is right in front of them. Creation necessitates a creator. Creation both sustains man's life and yet guarantees his demise. And yet man declares himself an animal rather than the very image of God. He buries his face in his food and his head in the sand. Man is a fool and the question remains, will we be fools? Or will we be wise? Will we take warning? Even more, will we take the message of salvation and receive it by faith? We have the sure word of God. Behold, I am coming soon, said Christ himself. And he says it yet today. Behold, I am coming soon, so let us hear And let us rejoice because we belong to him. We are his people. His promises are ours. Let us cling to those promises. And let us live for the glory of the one who is coming again and who will share his glory with us when he arrives. Amen. Let us pray. As we are called to pray, O God, our Father in heaven, so we do pray. 
come, Lord Jesus. And may this be our prayer, not just on Sundays, but each day. And may it not just be our prayer, but may it be the way we live our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming. And we thank you as well for your first coming, by which you dealt with sin, our sin, by your life and your death and your suffering, uh, by your resurrection and your ascension. We thank you that you have dealt with our sin so that as you are coming again, we will be acquitted, we will be vindicated, uh, we will be resurrected, we will be changed, and we will receive all that you have promised us, all that you have accomplished for us. We long for that day, and again we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly, and we ask in your name, amen.